Episode number 74 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today are Christina Bieberlake and Kim Feldman. Say hi, Christina and Kim. Hello. Hello. Uh, I am so glad that you're both here today. Uh, this episode is going to cover some pretty timely events that we feel really intersect with the purpose of our podcast. We're going to talk about Hashtag Me Too and Hashtag Church Too. And uh, we're going to do something a little different with those. We're going to frame those current movements within the arguments of a piece of feminist theory that's a couple of decades old, uh, but that we think has a lot to say to feminist thought being generated right now, and that's the essay The Laugh of the Medusa by the French feminist theorist Helene Sixou. Before we dive into that essay and what it has to say about our current moment, we thought it'd be good to start with a quick description of Me Too and Church Too as social movements, what they are, why they started, that sort of thing. But I guess before we do that, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, we should introduce ourselves for listeners who don't know us. Kim, tell us a little bit about you. My name is Kim Feldman, and I live in Baltimore with my husband and two kids, and I am a PhD student at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where I'm working on my dissertation in language, literacy, and culture, focusing on uh, how teachers navigate policy and practice, and I'm using feminist research methods for my dissertation. I, my husband is a pastor at a local church. That sounds awesome. Uh, your dissertation sounds really interesting, um, but also like a lot of hard work. I remember that struggle well. Yes, and I am in the thick of it. Well, good luck. You'll, uh, you'll make it to the other side. We all, we all did. Yep, <laughs> hang in there. You will make it. Thanks. Christina, since you gave that bit of encouragement, why don't you tell us who you are? Sure. Um, Christina Bieber-Lake. I teach at Wheaton College. Um, I've been there almost 20 years. And uh, I do mostly Southern literature and contemporary American literature, so I teach in the English department. And I live here in Wheaton with my husband and son, and my husband is an Anglican priest, so also a minister like Kim's husband. Thank you both. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota, with my husband, Michael Farmer, who you may know from the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, our brother podcast on the network. Um, I currently work at Public Radio International in Minneapolis, uh, and... So I listen to people who are mad at things they hear on the radio a lot. 
<laughs> um, which is sometimes fun and sometimes maddening and always very sociologically and anthropologically educational. <laughs> uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> so, um, like I said, we want to start off with a quick description of the Me Too and Church Too movements, what they are, and how they started. So, Kim, can you give us a little bit of background on hashtag Me Too? Yes. Uh, so we read the article, The Movement of Me Too, How Hashtag Got Its Power by Sophie Gilbert. It was posted on the Atlantic's webpage on October 16th. And it describes how in October of last year, the hashtag Me Too movement came into the spotlight in response to the wave of sexual misconduct allegations that followed the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Um, actress Alana Mar Milano, uh, Alyssa Milano posted a tweet that said, if all women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And the hashtag trended on Twitter and Facebook with women breaking the silence around their own experiences of sexual harassment and assault by posting Me Too and often even describing or listing their experiences. Uh, the author of the article uh, who begins her article with her own story about becoming aware of the vast number of people impacted by uh, sexual misconduct and sexual violence points out that for every woman who uh, stated her experience on social media, there were likely just as many choosing not to do so, which I think is important important for us to think about. Um, but that said, the author uh, suggests that while social media activism is not always very useful for bringing about tangible change, this particular hashtag movement achieved its goal by giving people that sense of the magnitude of the problem. Um, but we also wanted to bring up that that article um, left out some important voices, uh, which I went on to read another article from Ebony, which talked a lot about Tarana Burke, uh, because 10 years previous to this particular mm -hmm. hashtag movement, uh, Tarana Burke began a um, an organization focused on um, reaching out to sexual assault survivors in underprivileged neighborhoods. And she used the catchphrase, Me Too, um, as a means of helping women realize that there were other women who um, who had also gone through what they had gone through, that they were not alone, and as a means of helping them achieve healing through this network of other women who had gone through it as well. Um, and in that article, Burke actually says, um, the woman who began the uh, original Me Too movement, she points out that it wasn't built to be a viral campaign or a hashtag that was here today and gone tomorrow. It was a catchphrase to be used from survivor to survivor to let folks know that they were not alone and that a movement for radical healing was happening and possible. And then she goes on to say, in this instance, the celebrities who popularized this hashtag didn't take a moment to see if there was work already being done, but they also were trying to make a larger point. I don't fault them for that part. I don't think it was intentional, but somehow sisters still managed to get diminished or erased in these situations. A slew of people raised their voices so that that didn't happen. And so I wanted to, you know, make sure that we talked about that as well and um, that we need to note that initial erasure of Black women in that movement. Um, 
so I think that we need to discuss that further when we're talking about uh, CSU as a lens for considering the importance of women writing women and what that potentially means for black women writing black women. Absolutely. I, I think that's a that's a fantastic point, Kim. Um, and I um, I don't know if you two noticed the Time magazine person of the year cover. Mm hmm. Yeah. I did. Um, that that might be something uh, important to mention here that the silence breakers were the Time magazine person of the year for 2017. And um, Tarana Burke is foregrounded. Um, mm -hmm. in, in that cover, which I think is very important. And she mm -hmm. is, I'm not looking at the picture right now, but if I recall correctly, she's the only woman of color um, mm. pictured on the cover, I believe. Because um, it it's like Ashley Judd and Taylor Swift. Yeah, there, there looks to be one other person of color on there, but I don't know who she is. I don't know any of these people by faces anyway. No, yeah, maybe I not. No, but I, and I had also read something very interesting too about the the arm where there's oh, the person yes. without the oh, elbow, yes. the elbow, yeah, or the, yeah, elbow. The, the elbow, and the that, people that who kind of represent the people who haven't aren't able to speak up still, or haven't been able to, and and sort oh, wow. of validating that choice and saying, you know, we're we're here for you too. Yeah, that's, that's I, great. I thought that was really powerful and wonderful. That is. So let's let's be sure to to come back to that question of um, yeah. of how race uh, figures into women writing women, um, but for now continuing with uh, with background, um, there's been another movement semi in response to hashtag Me Too, uh, hashtag Church Too, where women um, are particularly discussing assault and harassment within religious contexts and how those structures. Um, patriarchal as they typically are in a lot of contexts um, feed into the the same kind of silences as uh, Hollywood and, and these other industries do. Christina, can you tell us a little bit about Church 2 and what it has to say to us coming from a Christian feminist perspective specifically? Sure. Uh, we read about it from America Magazine um, in December, and apparently this movement started in November by two women named Hannah Posh and Emily Joy, and they created this hash hashtag Church2 on Twitter to, and this is what a quote from um, Hannah, given the reckoning that Hollywood and Washington are undergoing with the abuse allegations coming to light, it seemed right to shine that same light on the Christian church. Um, both of these women were raised as evangelicals. Um, it's hard to tell whether they still uh, keep any amount of faith. I don't, it's not mentioned later on, but they wanted to encourage women to come forward who were silenced. Most of the time, the examples of people were silenced by their church. Um, Emily herself uh, apparently was abused by a youth leader at the age of 16, and the church silenced her. And just about everybody who posted on Twitter had some kind of really gruesome story along those lines. Just they're heartbreaking to read um, because places that are supposed to be safe, right, the church um, end up protecting the people who abused these women. And uh, it, it, I don't know about you guys, but reading that stuff just tears me up because yeah. – I mean, it's, it's just awful. Um, 
and and a lot of times it's done in the name of well there's this really you know prestigious leader and we don't want to you know harm our church by having this come out and so the women are shamed into remaining silent and they were trying to give a place for the voice of these women to come forward now i'm not on twitter so i don't know how big it got do you either of you know how big the hashtag church Two movement got it got pretty big um i i know it made it to um the the sort of female evangelical luminaries that you would expect um mm-hmm. your your uh, Brene Browns and your Jen Hatmakers and your Rachel Held Evanses. Yes. Yeah. Um, though you know, um, lots of lots of conversations among um, followers of of those folks. Um, who am I forgetting? Uh, Glenn and Doyle, um, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it didn't come across my personal feed the way that Me Too did. Same for uh, mine. Yeah. And that's why I was wondering, because especially because I'm not on Twitter, and I but I was seeing all the Me Too on Facebook, so I was I was wondering, um, you know, how far it got along. But it's so interesting to my mind because of the whole situation with Alabama and Roy Moore, you know, because he obviously abused very young women in the church, and and the excuses that he gave for that stuff was just disgusting. Things like, oh, you know, they're more pure or innocent so oh and did you hear him say that he came back from vietnam and there was nobody to date um hello yes i know so many women who you know (laughs) and and also um this has just happened recently i wasn't going to get to this until we talked about the why do women not talk argument but since we're talking about more um (laughs) recently the woman who came forward and said that he assaulted her when she was 14 um someone burned her house down and an arson investigation is underway yeah but somebody burned her house down someone burned her house down but i wonder why women don't report these why don't women speak up yeah gee Mm. right wow we'll we'll get back to the two articles that kim and christina mentioned um in just a bit but since we've given a little bit of an overview um, I want to dive into the Sixu piece that we're using as a frame. So Helene Sixu, who I, I have to just go ahead and, and fangirl honestly here. Um, if I have a favorite feminist theorist, she's it. Um, if I have a favorite piece of feminist theory, the laugh of the Medusa is probably it. Um, I've taught it probably 10 or so times. I've read it at least 50 times. I love this piece. It's very important to me. Um, I find a new and different piece of truth in it every time I read it. Um, And I I think it just has a lot to say to our current moment in terms of uh, women speaking their own stories in their own voices. Mm -hmm. It does. Uh, So, Sixu published this piece in 1975, originally in the uh, venerated deconstructionist journal Signs, Um, and uh, I'm sorry, she originally publishes it in French in 1975, and it gets translated into English and published in Signs the following year uh, in 1976, translated by Keith and Paula Cohen. 
so that version is the version that we read for this episode, and in it, Sixu argues for a new way of writing, a way of writing that she calls, please excuse my terrible French pronunciation, uh, l'écriture féminin, uh, the writing of women, the literature of women because it respects the innately feminine. Um, she talks a lot about how women's writing and women's language corresponds and should correspond to women's bodies, and says that um, the, the logos is gendered male, typically. The way of speaking and writing and making logic is gendered male, and sees these female differences that she wants to elevate as insane or as aberrant in some way. So she says, we need a new kind of writing because the, the accepted kind of writing doesn't make a space for us. So we have to make our own space. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of sub arguments um, that I want to lay out um, kind of quickly. Uh, Christina and Kim, please respond uh, as I go along if you feel moved. <laughs> uh, Will do. Thanks. So the first and most important argument, I think, is that she says women must write women. Um, and there are these exclamatory exultations to write, write exclamation point happens over and over again um, in the text. But she says that women must write women because they've been separated from themselves and separated from their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and that because women sort of, because they occupy female bodies that are different from male bodies, um, they need a particularly feminine way to, uh, to talk about their own experiences in the world. Um, what mm -hmm. do we think about that? What does it mean for women to write women? Well, I love the idea and I love how it can be mapped onto the speaking of women's voices that is really the place where it's happening. I mean, there's blogs and things like that, that Susu, of course, couldn't imagined in 1976. So there's writing, writing, writing uh, by women uh, and um, free, completely, you know, free for all. And whoever gets um, visitors to their blog gets visitors to their blog. But then there's also podcasts. And I was thinking about Truth's Table and this podcast and women's voices being heard um, with this kind of, energy and freedom that comes from the internet. And I think that's good because in my mind, what, what Susu is saying is that women writing their own story, their own individuality, their own persons, it, it becomes the ultimate response to what, um, you know, Simone de Beauvoir had noticed was just this stereotyping of women, women universalizing them, making them into this mystique. And we're not that, right? We're our own individual people who, yeah, being a woman means something, but it doesn't mean the same thing to every woman, to every woman. So I think that's what she means by writing your own story. Right. You know? And I think about, uh, like, in the terms of discourse theory and how uh, the idea that we are, uh, that language and words, they don't just reflect reality, but they actually construct reality. And mm -hmm. um, so by women's uh, voices being out there, by their words being out there, uh, they can kind of take control of the narrative. They can um, they can assert themselves into the story in their own voices um, for their own purposes, rather than being defined by 
um, the way that men might write their stories um, and that we kind of um, take up what we read. And so the what the stories that are out there, they shape us. Um, and so for women to be shaping those stories, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. And their voices are in their body, their individual lives. Each woman is as individual as your particular body on this planet, right? Mm -hmm. You were born into this body an individual person with an individual face that nobody else will have unless you have a twin. Right. And, uh, yeah, to me that, that it's, that's what it means to write the body, like thinking about writing as a body. Mm -hmm. But women can be constrained if the, the narrative out there, or, um, if they're limited in what they're allowed to say or, um, Exactly. Their ability to get their voices and their words out there, uh, then that individual individuality can be, constrained. Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is why I think Siksu chooses to use a particular kind of metaphor um, over and over in this piece. She's pushing against uh, the constraint of women not being allowed to speak in their own voices and speak in their own bodies. She uses all these liquid metaphors over and over. Mm -hmm. Metaphors that I think, not coincidentally, are also being invoked in lots of media coverage of um, of this Me Too moment that we're living in. Uh, we hear, mm -hmm. We're hearing a lot about floods of allegations and waves of accusations. Um, <laughs> and uh, Sigzu also uses a lot of liquid metaphors. Um, here's one of my favorite paragraphs that's about two or three pages into The Laugh of the Medusa. Uh, I too overflow. My desires have invented new desires. My body knows unheard of songs. Time and again I too have felt so full of luminous torrents that I could burst. Burst with forms much more beautiful than those which are put up in frames and sold for a fortune. And I too said nothing, showed nothing. I didn't open my mouth. I didn't repaint my half of the world. I was ashamed. I was afraid. And I swallowed my shame and my fear. I said to myself you are mad what's the meaning of these waves these floods these outbursts yeah, that's a great passage i love it yeah i i love it too and i i love the way that it um it sort of struggles within itself it um it rev revels in and sort of enjoys the liquidness of the female body um and and the fact that you know, this is a way our bodies are, are different than male bodies. We uh, we produce milk, we menstruate, we are more liquid um, than, than men are just biologically. And this passage says that that's a good thing, but also knows that societally it's a shameful thing. So I, I love sort of mm. feeling both of those emotions um, in, in that same passage, because I think it really mm -hmm. speaks to why we don't speak about these things um you hear mm -hmm. you hear the criticism of like well if this happened to you why did you wait um why did you right. wait decades and i think mm -hmm. Sixu speaks to that mm -hmm. yes shame is a very powerful thing to keep you silent you know um it is the probably the most powerful tool to keep women silent and to me this me too movement and church too movement it What's been so encouraging about it is that because of the numbers of voices that are coming out, people have been able to get over that shame. 
right? And just right. recognize that, that they don't own that shame. That shame has been imposed upon them um, by a patriarchal system or the purity culture, right? That's something that the church too movement keeps talking. And, and, and in fact, I feel like if there's one theme that the Christian feminist podcast talks about more than any other, it's the purity culture, right? Yeah, because right. it has had this we really terrible, around here. yeah, this shaming effect, right? Right. On, on women. And one thing that comes to mind too, that, um, that I always notice is that taking of the liquid, um, going back to that liquid metaphor and the, the, the feminine liquidity of the milk and the menstruation um, is that the way, and I think it's a sinful thing. Um, it's a, it's a characteristic of sin to take something beautiful and, and distort it. Um, and the milk is something beautiful and life-giving. Mm-hmm. The blood is something beautiful and life-giving. Um, and to take that and distort it into something shameful and, yes. and ugly, um, you know, that, that to me is one of the, ways that we can characterize or define sin. Mm-hmm. That's a very good definition. I love that because it really helps you to see that things are twisted and distorted and, you know, exactly so. And I, I think Sixu um, echoes that too, when she talks about w- one of the, um, one of the central tenets of Eclita Femina being writing with white ink um, and you're sort of supposed to, to see um, breast milk there. The idea that mm-hmm. if the if the ink is the same color as the paper, then how will we know if it's real writing? Real writing like male publishing houses with their black ink and their typewriters and their grammar rules and the whole, you know, the, the fact that this logic that what writing is, is black ink on white paper. Well, no, mm-hmm. what, if, what if it's also white ink? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so great. And I love the part in the essay where she goes on to say that, you know, if you write, it will, it gives woman back her goods, her pleasures, her organs, her immense bodily territories, she says, which have been kept under seal. And it will liberate her for, for being guilty, she says, guilty of everything, guilty at every turn for having desires, for not having any, for being frigid, for being too hot for not being both at once, for being too motherly and not enough, for having children and for not having any, for nursing and for not nursing, right? I mean, the, the, you get, it's the double bind that we always talk about, right? right. That, oh, sure. You know, you're so just always going to be blamed. Yeah, oh, it really yeah. is. You're just going to be blamed no matter what you do, right? No matter what right. choice you make. And the only way to overcome that is to just have floods of women with their own stories, making it impossible to ignore, right? Yeah normalizing their experience yeah normalizing their experience and 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 that's why writing is so important it's, it's like you were saying earlier kim it's the place where the change the potential for social and political change is the is the greatest right this the, right. the outpouring of different uh, stories different ways of looking at the world uh, different works of art right all of that uh, contributes right. to this this larger voice these other voices being heard uh, so great, great discussion so far. I'm loving where this is going. Um, I have two more small points um, about the the main. Uh, I don't want to say thrust of the text. That's too phallic. Oh. That's too phallic a word. Um, the main. We need, to, we need to come up with our own words. Stream, stream of the text. We'll go with that. It's a water word. Um, so two more 
uh, branches of the stream of the text. There we go. She says she knows why women don't write and why she didn't write um, before she was 27. And she says it's because writing is reserved for great people, that is, great men. And also, um, she uses uh, a masturbation metaphor. She says that women write like women masturbate um, just a little bit and just to take the edge off. Um, Mm -hmm. What do we make of that? How how does it speak to um, this overall movement? Kim, I'm waiting for you to. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Christina. Uh... It's funny. I mean, of course, you know, men have always judged sexuality and sexual pleasure by their own experiences of sexuality and sexual pleasure and, and indeed denied women their own pleasures, right, or misunderstood them. Um, classically and for, you know, forever, right? This has been the case. So I think this is one of those places where Sisu is, is arguing, no, you don't, you can't even begin to understand. It's sort of like the Walt Whitman, but women, Walt women, like I contain multitudes, you know, there's way more involved in my sexuality than pure just orgasm, right? Um, to me, that's one of the great things about this text is that it understands that very, very well, right? That women are, it, women's sexual experience is so different in that regard, right? And that it that Sigzu is able to embrace this sort of messiness of the female body. Um, mm-hmm. Christina, you mentioned Beauvoir earlier, um, and I I love Beauvoir. I know I've said that on mm-hmm. this podcast before, but um, the the if if there's a place that Beauvoir falls short, um, which I think Beauvoir would agree with this, um, it's that she she sort of isn't willing to deal with female embodiment. She thinks it's mm-hmm. too, it's too difficult to fit into her framework um, of, of the philosophy of womanhood. And I, I like that not only is Sixu willing to go there, but she's willing to say like, this is a mess and it scares people. And I love that it scares people and like, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I think she's also speaking though, too, to the taboo of like the, it's not as acceptable for women to talk about sex or to talk about masturbation, um, whereas it's kind of culturally acceptable that um, for men to talk about it and for that to be a part of the landscape of masculinity. Um, and so I think the connection to writing, too, um, of what women are and are not allowed to talk about or write about um, in their own experience and what is taboo, um, what is restricted. Mm -hmm. You also, of course, have to remember that, you know, it's 20 years later, and a lot happened in those 20 years, right? You know, Simone de Beauvoir writing in the 50s, (laughs) and uh, what you're able to say and not able to say versus having gone through the whole post-structuralist revolution and everything that that said about language and words. and, and, And so, so many different things, you know, made that possible. Um, and I, what I, one of the things I love about this piece, which I always teach in my theory class, is how it responds to post-structuralist theory, particularly Derrida. And the whole, if we can just go down a super nerdy theoretical <laughs> avenue for a little while, yes. um, 
you know, is that okay with you? Um, you know, because Derrida, this whole thing about absence, right? This the absence center. It's just all about lack, and and then Lacan goes even worse on that, oh, which is just like it's just so disgusting. I can't stand Sorry, Lacan. I really, he's yeah. the worst. <laughs> he just is the, the worst. worst. I st- I stopped teaching him after a while because I was like, what is the point of this? I'm not teaching this this crap anymore, right? He just wants to make you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. Like, I stopped teaching it too because I was like, I'm yeah. not doing this. Wow. It's terrible stuff, but this is what she says about him. Lacan preserves it in the sanctuary of the phallus sheltered from castration's lack. There symbolic exists. It holds power. We, the sowers of disorder, know it only too well. But we are in no way obliged to deposit our lives in their banks of lack to consider the constitution of the subject in terms of a drama manglingly restaged to reinstate again and again the religion of the father. Because we don't want that. I love this line right here. We don't fawn around the supreme hole. H-O-L-E. Yeah. <laughs> that oh my is just you know, We won't it, deposit ourselves in your lack. Yeah, right. because to say that it's all about lack or absence, you know, and, and you know, Derrida was just trying to critique uh, metaphysics and say that you know it all deconstructs itself and women know that it doesn't right that there's that women affirm they're right they're more on the uh moving forward side production right it's about producing mm-hmm. things the ability to reproduce which is the women's you know <laughs> province if you will right um yeah. And we don't have to worry about absence and lack. We know we don't have absence and lack. We don't want to live there. I just love that. That's so great. You know, because in you know, with Derrida, language it just kind of, you just keep trying and making this effort and the slippage of the signifier and all this stuff, but it's all to cover a, up a hole. For Susu, it's no, it's just to express something that's actually there. And I think that's a huge difference, and it's so delightful mm-hmm. between the two of them. It's out and to let things out and fill things up. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. So yep. um, before we dive back into the other articles, um, we should talk about the titular metaphor um, of the piece. Uh, so first of all, why Medusa? And secondly, um, why is she beautiful and laughing as Sixu? Uh, says she is so what um what's what's Sixu trying to do by invoking the myth of the medusa and why do you think she has her uh refers to her as beautiful and laughing well of course right medusa the classic woman you look at her and you turn to stone and so men have to you know back i was thinking about how barack obama said he hated taking selfies with people because people were always coming at him with their backs you know, so people have to come to the Medusa with their backs so that they don't look on her and then get turned to stone. So it's this metaphor for women's power that has been, you know, abused to 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 say, oh, it's about, you know, you're you're a monstrous woman. Right. If you if you have this kind of power, it's only because you're monstrous. And so when you can look at the Medusa and laugh then you're just saying, you know what, this, is, this power is perfectly fine. Liberate it. Let's go. That's the way I read that. Kim, do you have a thought about that? What I was thinking, too, is um, just the idea that when men are forced <laughs> to look at women for who they really are, um, how that kind of uh, 
destroys their power in a way, not in a negative way of like, I guess it destroys the patriarchal power. Um, so that, that was what I was thinking about um, as well. And just that kind of, that laugh of the Medusa that, like you said, that she um, is okay with that power um, and uh, she's comfortable with it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point um, about the sort of the power of men seeing women as as humans. Um, I just want to read the the passage where uh, Sixu says that Medusa is beautiful and laughing. Too bad for them, men, if they fall apart upon discovering that women aren't men. But right. isn't this but isn't this fear convenient for them? Wouldn't the worst be, isn't the worst in truth, that women aren't castrated, that they have to only stop listening to the sirens, for the sirens they were men, for history to change its meaning. You only have to look at the Medusa straight on to see her, and she's not deadly, she's beautiful and laughing. So this idea mm-hmm. that like the fullness of femininity and its difference from masculinity, the idea that um, you know, women can be full, holistic, varied, complex, beautiful human beings without having anything to do with the male framework um, is what really terrifies men, is what she's saying. And I think that right. um, I think that that's where some of the truth and a lot of the terror in the Me Too movement is, too. Like, mm-hmm. there, there are women who have power and who have voices and who aren't going to be afraid to use them anymore. And that's the scary thing. Right. Yeah, and it's truly frightening to men. It's so funny. In fact, you know, the um, the Onion did this really great take up on it, and I'm just looking really quickly in my um, notes because I wanted to get it exactly right. Um, I don't know. I can't find it, but oh my gosh, it's so funny. It says something like, "A man thinks that some woman somewhere is going to call him out for something." You know, <laughs> so right. he's, he's just afraid. <laughs> this just yep. this random like some, hold him accountable for something that he actually did, you know. Right. <laughs> and it, it's it's great to have that kind of fear actually, kind of like you know, wait a second, now I have to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable for stuff right. that I did. You know, I love it. D- did you see the real article that was like, well, what about our office Christmas parties? Am I not supposed to hug women? Yeah, I saw that. Yep. Well, maybe just ask first. And if she says yes, then yeah. you're fine. And if she says no, right. then that means no. Like, yeah. th- why, right. why is this such a conundrum for you? Yeah, no, exactly. And if you, wow. are, oh, if you are above board, then you don't have to worry about it, right? But, right, oh, right. So frustrating. Yeah. Okay, so um, now that we've discussed uh, the Sixu... I think pretty pretty thoroughly, um, and we'll we'll try to link to the PDF um, that we used. Um, we'll try to put that in the show notes so that you all can read this wonderful piece. Um, let's jump back into the two articles and and try to continue the conversation. Talk about what they have to say back to um, Sisu's framing. So, Kim. Um, Can you go back to the Atlantic piece for us? Sure. Um, So the central premise of that article is 
it has to do with the power that that movement had to kind of bring to light the prevalence of sexual harassment and sexual violence. Um, so by women writing their experience in this kind of democratized format of social media that allows everyone's voices to get out there, um, mm -hmm. the truth of the of the the reality of that situation was brought into the light. Um, and so that's something that I really agreed with in the article. She provided anecdotal evidence of how hard it is for people to acknowledge the, their experiences with sexual harassment and assault, um, contrasted with how common it actually is when people do start talking about it. Um, and so thinking of that movement through the lens of Sikhsu, it it makes sense. Women are not comfortable speaking up about these experiences because of shame that's often associated with the experiences, because of the cultural impropriety of discussing sex or the desire not to rock the boat or um, to be seen as causing problems. So, you know, women have kind of fit themselves into the mold that's expected of them um, in these different environments. Mm -hmm. um, then there's also the issue of fear of being seen as dirty or as a slut. So these stereotypes mm -hmm. that are placed on women in those circumstances, and even worse, um, being repeatedly traumatized by having to rehash what's happened to them to multiple audiences um, who like, and often ending up having to defend themselves and their own actions against mm -hmm. accusations as a result of it, um, and to undergo painful scrutiny and interrogation and disbelief from the people that they confide in. And um, so- Or have your there, house burned down. Right. So there are so many reasons <laughs> right. why these women um, aren't speaking up. Um, and- a lot of women also don't have the platforms to share their stories often. Um, and so I think by these women who were, were in places of privilege and power, by them speaking up, it had kind of that trickle down effect of multiple people saying, wow, I'm not alone and it's okay to talk about this. And so I can talk about it. Um, and so I think that that, that demonstrates that power of women writing women and um, what it can do to reshape things in a way. Um, so as women wrote the reality of women, more, willing were, more women were willing to bring their voices into the conversation and they kind of took control of the narrative um, in a way that hadn't been done before. Um, I think for me, one of the most eye-opening experiences about the whole thing, um, was how much the status quo had been normalized in my mind. Like I was kind of surprised mm -hmm. that people were surprised about the Weinstein allegations because mm -hmm. I had kind of normalized casting couch culture in my mind, you know, like I, mm -hmm. I, had, I was a drama kid in high school and I just thought that that was, that's, that's how things are. You know, if you decide to go into this profession and if certain professions, you know, there are certain men in power who are going to take advantage of that power and you just have to be prepared to figure out how you're going to deal with it when that happens, because it's going to happen. Um, and so, mm -hmm. or you avoid um, the career altogether, right? Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
And the, the author, the article mentioned that she says, but as horrifying as the allegations against Weinstein have been more appalling still is the sense that this behavior isn't uncommon, that in industries across the world, from media to music, to modeling, to academia, women have encountered their own uh, Weinsteins and have deduced for whatever reason that nothing could be done about it. And nobody cared. And that I was one of those people. I was just like, oh, there's, that's just how it is. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, for me, this, that was what was important about this was to be like, wait a minute. No, that's not just, it doesn't have to be that way. That is how it is, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, it shouldn't be that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I think is one of the powerful things for me that, um, came out of the whole movement. Um, and I think the Ebony article that I read was also important because it was, kind of a secondary mo movement of um, black women saying, you know, we, there's this pattern of the erasure of the work of black women and we need to bring that to light um, and we need to speak up about that. Um, and in light of Siksu, uh, one of my favorite lines and I don't, where did I write it down? She says, um, when the repressed of their culture and their society returns, it's an explosive, utterly destructive, staggering return with a force never yet unleashed and equal to the most forbidding suppression. Um, mm. And that's kind of, you know, the Me Too movement kind of had this destructive force to kind of dismantle a little portion of patriarchy and kind of destabilize certain notions of acceptable behavior for men. Um, mm -hmm. which was really, really powerful. And personally, I have to anticipate that eventually Black women are going to do the same thing. Um, and I think they did in a way in Alabama because they were a, kind say, of a major yeah. mm -hmm. force. Yeah. Right. They yeah. helped yep. to, to stop Roy Moore. Um, and, you know, I just see them, you know, they have these multiple intersecting planes of oppression, you know, that it's not just being a woman, but also being a black woman, they've got, you know, mm -hmm. the forbidding suppression for them um, is even higher, I think. And there's that mm -hmm. very destructive uh, stereotype of the angry black woman. But when you think about it, the truth is they have a lot of reasons to be angry mm -hmm. um, at yeah. multiple oh, ratios. Um, and so I just, you know, I am expectant that eventually we're going to see them return to society with a staggering force. <laughs> um, and it's mm -hmm. it's going to be awesome to behold. I think so. Make, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you guys think? Um about the movement and how effective it's been in bringing women's voices to bear. <laughs> Victoria, go ahead. You were saying something. Um, I just love that we are talking about female anger as a valid thing now. Like this is, is mm -hmm. something that I've seen happen in the past, probably just couple of months um, in, in talking about hashtags also associated with this movement. Um, I've, I've been seeing a lot of women within certain industries use hashtag burn it down. Um, have you guys mm. seen this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, and, and I think, I think it's just so interesting to think about that anger is now, at least for a little while, at least in a particular context, a valid feminine emotion. Like, um, it's not mm -hmm. just, oh, she's crazy, 
right? Um, right. Oh, oh right. she's insane. I think that we're in a really powerful place. Um, Kim, you were saying how you just sort of went through life thinking, well, that's the way it is. Um, and, and I did too. And I had, and, you know, have for a long time because I live in a female body and there's just stuff that happens that you say, okay, I guess this is going to keep happening. Um, and I've had so many conversations in the past couple of months with so many men um, that I love and know so many men who came to me and said, like, is it really like this for you, like, every single day? And I say, yeah, like, you know, I've mm-hmm. I, I've been masturbated next to on the bus. I've been grabbed. I've been, like, mm-hmm. these, this is just, mm-hmm. this is the way that life is when you go through the world in a female body. And mm-hmm. and they they just, like, can't comprehend it because it's so outside of their experiences. Um, but I've... I I really think that I am lucky to have friends and family um, and a husband, because we had that conversation too, um, who I think are really making an effort to listen and understand the difference in the experience. Um, So I I think that Mm -hmm. this this cultural conversation could be leading us to a good place um, just as mm-hmm. a people, I think that maybe things might actually be starting to change in a real way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I think there's so many similarities, um, between this situation and the situation with racism, right? Because there was this sort of cultural moment of like, Oh, we're past sexism. We're past racism. And now we've been very much proven. No, we're not past either. Right. Uh, feminism is a oh, very yeah. strong need. You know, uh, and we need to fight white supremacy with everything within us because it's still strong and still out there. Right. I don't think anybody believes that it's it's just grown because of Trump or whatever. It's always been there. But now Trump has made it possible for people to be kind of proud of it. Right. Um, And so it's just been exposed. Yeah. Exactly. And and people are like, oh, I love this guy because he lets me say what I really think. And I always have really thought so. We're not post-racial and we're certainly not post any kind of, you know, post-sexism either, right? And abuse, right, of women. So it's – and I agree with you, Victoria. I feel like we're at this – yeah. I feel like we're at this moment. I used to have a sign-up in my office that said, I'll be post-feminist in the post-patriarchy. Well, um, that's right. And that's how I feel. <laughs> like, that's right. No, this stuff, yeah. for as long as it exists, we need to fight against it. That's right. And, and there's a little bit too of this kind of, um, I don't know, the lie behind uh, the enlightenment view of progress, right, is constantly being exposed. It was exposed by World War Two. And it's exposed by, you know, post civil rights, racism, and the still ongoing right problem with sexism and, and abuse of women. I mean, I don't know how much more proof of your Calvinism, Victoria, that we would need than the fact that we are just constantly returning to these sins, you know, and to act as if we're past them is is really, I I think, been proven to be a lie. Oh, yeah. History is not in a forward moving, upward slanting line. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And also total depravity, because I have not said it yet this episode. Total depravity, (laughs) y'all. Yep. Yep. 
Okay, so we should probably... Well, you um, know... Sorry. Go ahead, Christina. No. No, I was just going to say, it's it's sort of like when you're a teacher and you have to teach each new generation the same old things, you're like, why can't they learn it? Because they're the new generation that's coming up. You, you know what I mean? They, they're not just going to somehow get over sin, right? Or right. come into college understanding things that you want them to understand. You got to teach. Um, so our, our, our culture, I think, is, is, is learning a little bit more about that. Okay, so um, Christina, I'm going to let you uh, keep talking a little bit more. Can you go back to the America Magazine piece in light of Sixu? Sure. I mean, it's really um, great that the the writers of this, the writer of this piece, and the, particularly the women who started the Church Two movement, really understand that it's a structural and a systemic problem that can only be overcome by the empowering of, of women's voices, right? Hearing more voices <clears throat> and at letting the abuse come out. And it's a way to clean house and make the church stronger, right? At the end of the article, um, Joy, Emily Joy said, we don't want to see the church die. On the contrary, we want to see the church as a force for true justice in the world, always on the side of the marginalized and making the world a better place with its resources. So far from hating the church, we're critiquing it because we care about it being better. And it goes so well with Susu's piece because it's like the more of these voices that you hear, the more that the patriarchal structures and the way that it silences women um, get written over and real change can actually happen. And one of the things that's also mentioned in the article is the need for more women in leadership positions just so right. – that you create an environment where you just can't get away with sexual abuse or assault, right? You just can't right. get away with it anymore. And, and I agree with that. I think the more women that you have sort of in positions of leadership of, of any sort, the less likely you are to um, allow that to just stand, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Because upward accountability is going to make you call those things into question. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, it's always scary to me how often you see evidence of this kind of patriarchal looking the other way thing, you know, and I agree with what you guys were saying earlier about how kind of annoying it was that people were surprised by it, right? And a lot in the Facebook Me Too movement end of it, the the end of it that I saw, it was really interesting because a lot of my Facebook friends were posting what really shocks me is why people are so surprised that so many people are saying me too, you know, right. why are you surprised by this? You know? And so it, within the church, we shouldn't be surprised to see it either, but just to have the energy to get it exposed, to really take a step forward on that is, is exciting to me. You know, um, I, I just, I don't know how else to describe it. This it, I feel more energized and more hopeful about this than I have in a long time. Yeah, me it's too. It's kind of like you me know, the, too. Yeah. Um, and, and the Arab was... Spring thing, you know? <laughs> you know, if you can tweet and you can be on Facebook and you can get the, you know, people to see where these abuses are taking place, it has a very powerful effect. The accumulation right. of voices. And technology has a lot of things that are bad about it, but a lot of things that are really great about it. And this is one of right. the things that in my mind is really exceptionally good about it. But I think for me, too, though, it really prompted me to think about, okay, well, what's next? Because, um, you know, with the Me Too movement, 
they did move on to something called Time's Up, which is a bunch of actresses and um, female studio executives and writers and directors who kind of got together. They came up with a $14 million legal defense fund that for less privileged victims um, of sexual abuse. Um, And they are working with entertainment executives to to achieve greater gender parity in executive uh, in the entertainment world. Uh, and so I started to think about, well, what does that mean for the churches? Um, you know, as a leader in my mm-hmm. church, uh, you know, what does it look like for us? Because there's, you know, at the root of this, women's inability to speak in churches, um, you know, it is structural and we need to think about what do we need to change in the institution to make it a place where women do feel safe Um talking about mm-hmm. this and I and I feel an added burden too because we're in a complementarian church and so you know what uh, distortions of scriptural exegesis are occurring that women think for any reason that they shouldn't talk about these things um, or that they can't talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so it made, made me really think about, you know, what do I, how do I need to approach the topic, you know, in our women's ministry and in our teaching um, and, you know, how do we need to train our leaders to better support women who are victims? Um, so, you know, it really got me thinking a lot about what do we need to do as a church um, to make it mm-hmm. easier for women to speak about it, you know, in mm-hmm. our church. I've been thinking a lot about that too. And, and also thinking a lot about um, what it means for women to write women. Um, and have, have you guys noticed this sort of trend of, um, of Bible journaling um, in women's groups recently? No. Uh, I haven't in women's groups necessarily, but um, I have seen a little bit about people, you know, talking more about it in um, on my Facebook feed. Um, so there, tell, are, tell us. there are these, I'm not sure how I feel about it for a, a series of reasons that we don't have time to talk about here, but um, I thought it might be useful um, for this women writing women conversation in terms of how do we have this conversation in the church. So there's this trend of um, in your daily Bible reading, you're encouraged, and I think there are actually special journaling editions of the Bible now that like the pages are bigger and it gives you space um, to, right. to write and draw in the margins and the edges. Um, and as you meditate and pray, you're supposed to um, underline, draw, write, quota- write, write quotations that speak to you. Um, in the context of what you're reading, um, draw pictures. I've seen people who um, who insert their names into the scriptures, um, you know, in in the promises of God, mm. things, things like that. Um, and I I was thinking because I know a lot of um, women's ministries use this kind of journaling and lettering. Um, to get people to pray through the scriptures and experience them together, that journaling in general might be a good way to get at these kinds of conversations. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I do, I do think in in Christian circles um, that need for women to write women is being um, explored through. I mean, there are just so many Christian women 
writing blogs, um, particularly mom blogs. <laughs> um, and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've noticed this phenomenon, how many of my friends have done this. Um, and I just, and I, I see it as this need for women, particularly a lot of women who are suddenly stay at home women who are just like, oh my goodness, I, I need to get my voice out there. I need to get my experience out there. I need to know that I'm not alone in these things that I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that that's very powerful. And uh, through podcasts as well, that Christian women are um, telling their stories. But um, I still feel like this particular thing, um, you know, issues of sexual abuse and... Um, and sex in general is still very taboo. <laughs> um, so, mm -hmm. I, and I and I do believe it goes back to that thing where something good gets distorted uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there is there is so much in scripture about be having discretion in what you say, um, mm -hmm. and that your words need to be seasoned with salt and they need to be used for the building up of others and. Um, and to avoid unwholesome talk, you know, there's, so there's these things that are good. These scriptures are life-giving and they are good. And we do need to have description in our speech, but to recognize also that the Bible tells us to open your mouth and to speak up for those who need you to speak up for them and that we mm -hmm. need to bring things into the light. And so we have to take those Verses in the context of the whole of scripture and to know that there are certain things that we need to bring into the light. Um, and uh, so I think mm -hmm. that that we need to pay attention to that in our teaching. Um, and I, I can think of one particular example in our church. Um, oftentimes when my husband's going to be talking about gender roles or um, marriage or women in, in any way, he'll let me look at his sermon notes ahead of time to kind of look at it from the female perspective and say, you might want to work on the wording here. Um, and, you know, one of those times he actually had me participating um, and giving my experience about around the verse of wives submitting to their husbands. Um, and I felt, and he agreed that it was really important for us to talk about that if women are in abusive situations, um, mm -hmm. you know, yes, good. before marriage or during marriage, like that the, the husband has abdicated his role in that relationship and that she has no obligation <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to submit to that and that she needs to get safe. She needs to find somebody that she can trust to talk to um, and to make sure that they knew that this was a safe place in our church for them to come forward and to talk to one of us. Um, so I, you know, I just think that that's something we need to be more um, conscientious of, I guess, in churches of how these good things in scripture can get distorted in ways that are unhealthy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if uh, Ephesians 5, 23 and 24 aren't held up you know, Ephesians five twenty two doesn't matter. Exactly. Mm -hmm. right. Yep. Okay. Well, we're uh, it's good stuff. We're thank you. Uh, we're running low on time, so I think I'm gonna take us to our f uh, third and final segment 
of every episode of the CFP, our Passing On segment, where we give you recommendations uh, for things we think you should check out. Christina, what do you have for us? Well, I was just thinking um, about this when Kim was talking about, you know, feeling alone um, and needing to hear other people stories because you're like, oh, that's happened to me. So much of the poetry that was written by women starting in the 70s and moving forward is just exactly that. Um, I'm going to speak up my experiences so that you, the reader, won't feel alone. And so this whole movement made me think of Lucille Clifton, who is one of my favorite poets. So I want to pass on Lucille Clifton um, to anybody who is not familiar with her, African-American, uh, just died not that long ago. And she wrote a poem about Lorena Bobbitt, who uh, who cut off her husband's penis. And um, I had to read this poem. It's really short. Is that okay for you guys? Go for it. <laughs> Victoria, as, is that okay? As right. long as uh, nothing's going to have to be bleeped. No, no. We're good? Okay. The topic makes makes uh, men cross their legs, but, you know, that can't be helped. Okay, so she's speaking as Lorena. The poem is called Lorena. Lorena Bobbitt is the subject, but she's the speaker as well. She says, It lay in my palm, soft and trembled, as a new bird. And I thought about authority, and how it always insisted on itself, how it was master of the man, how it measured him, never was ignored or denied, and how it promised there would be sweetness if it was obeyed just like the saints do, like the angels. And I opened the window and held out my uncupped hand. I swear to God, I thought it could fly. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm not sure I can say any more than that. I'm glad uh, you were our first recommendation, Christina. Um, Go ahead and follow that one, Kim. Thanks. Um, I do want to recommend the article that I read in Ebony, a black woman created the Me Too campaign 10 years ago, and I will provide you with that URL. Um, And hold on to your hats. But I am going to recommend the Sheologians podcast on sexual abuse. We all know that I'm very critical of this podcast. (laughs) However, I wanted to to put this forth um, first to correct, um, I guess, an omission from the, the podcast that I did on that, um, because I did listen to a couple of their later episodes, this one in particular, um, and this one, actually, this is the only one that I felt that they approached in a really, um, an appropriate way. Um, it was very uh, much based in uh, theology and they really dug into scripture and what it says about sexual abuse. Um, so I do want to put that one out there for that reason. Thanks. Uh, I will put both of those links in the show notes for everyone. My recommendation is um, a pretty famous uh, feminist studies essay. Um, by Anne Rosalind Jones called Writing the Body Toward an Understanding of La Cliture Feminine. And um, it puts Sixou in kind of the broader context of French feminist thought. Um, also talks about Julia Kristeva, Luce Irigaray, and Monique Wittig um, and kind of puts them 
uh, on this continuum together talks about how Lechley Seraphimina developed as a mode of thought um, and how they see it a little bit differently, and particularly how it's concerned with, um, as the title says, writing the body, and how we can kind of recenter um, language and and modes of writing around um, the female body that it's sort of been um, been afraid of up to the point that they're writing. So that's my recommendation. Thanks. Uh, Great. So are we ready to uh, wrap this thing up, ladies? Yes. I think so. Okay. Thank you both. And thank you all for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you if you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, please do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are so inclined, or find us on our Facebook page. You can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Christina Bieber-Lake and Kim Feldman, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the Australian television series Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.